Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Christian Sirace, who's Assistant Professor of Political Science at Colorado College. And he's one of three co-editors alongside Ivan Franceschini and Nicholas Lubert of the new volume Afterlives of Chinese Communism, which was published in 2019 jointly by Verso, and Australian National University Press. The meanings and acceptability of the word socialism have shifted continuously over time, something observable today in many parts of the world, including, to our shock, the United States. Projects to build that similarly elusive thing, communism, have, unsurprisingly, also been open to constant interpretation. And this is nowhere more the case than in today's China, where, despite cataclysmic social and economic changes in recent decades, and numerous obvious moves away from the era of Mao Zedong, a communist party remains in charge after 70 years. Indeed, as many of you will know, the anniversary fell just a few weeks ago. Strikingly, this party not only continues to speak in a language of socialist construction, but is also genealogically linked to earlier CCP generations, as well in the most generous possible interpretation as being deeply embroiled in several Promethean projects to reshape humanity through brute state power on its margins. All of this and more challenges to work out exactly how today's political settlement in China relates to what went before. And Christian Sorace, Ivan Franceschini and Nicolas Lubert's compendious book offers a compelling answer to precisely this challenge. The 53 pithy and incisive chapters offer a multi-pronged set of answers to any questions we might have, about what the Chinese Communist Party means and has meant over its lifespan, and indeed what Chinese communism more broadly has meant. Not limiting themselves to the often unavoidably robust figure of Mao himself, the co-authors and co-editors trace dimensions of the communist inheritance not only through totemic keywords such as dialectical materialism, class struggle, or primitive accumulation, but also in ways that elevate us into the sublime realm of utopianism, aesthetics, and liberationist idealism. Indeed, it's this marriage of a head-on focus on the particular and this elevation into the sublime that makes this work so beguiling. But since it's basically impossible to sum up, I think we should get on with talking about it. So I'll say, Christian Sirace, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me, and it's a pleasure to, to be here. Well, it's great to have someone on to talk about this uh, pretty amazing uh, book. Um, but uh, before we kind of get into the actual content, um, I guess uh, it's a pretty unique project and one with uh, a lot, awful lot of different dimensions. So uh, it would be right to ask you, how did it come about? What was the kind of underpinnings of uh, the, the uh, Afterlives of Chinese Communism project? That's a wonderful and uh, complicated question. So... Um... <laughs> It came about from the recognition that global capitalism is in crisis, but as Mark Fisher put it, there seems to be no alternative on the horizon. Unlike in the past, we have no future we can turn to. 
So in many ways, we are stuck with the past, although not necessarily stuck in the past, which means that we need to forge a new relation to the past that is neither nostalgic nor romantic, nor even backward looking, but critically aimed at its explosive potentialities. We need to scavenge scavenge the debris of the past for insight into how to transform the present into the kind of emancipatory future we desire. Our future, the future of humanity, literally depends on it. So part of the inspiration for the project comes from Verso Press and a number of um, books that they've published over the past decade, including The Idea of Communism, Volumes 1 through 3, based on a series of conferences, works of thinkers like Slavoj Žižek, Alain Badiou, Jody Dean, uh, among many, many others, that are all dedicated to revitalizing and rethinking and reclaiming the legacies of communism for a future left politics. So, um, but but part of uh, my thinking was that China has, by and large, with the exception of you know the errant Mao quote here and there, uh, been been left out of this conversation. Uh, so I wanted to start. I wanted to um, to do a project that put the. Uh, legacies of the 20th century uh, China in conversation with work on communism as a philosophical concept or the legacies of Soviet and Eastern European communism. Uh, So we started off the project from asking the basic question, what can we learn from the communist experiment during the Mao period? And I assume we'll come back to this question throughout the interview, as this is a core feature of the book. So first, um, don't get me wrong. We have a wide range of approaches and political stances in the book, some of which are profoundly critical of Mao. Our main requirement um, when conceptualizing the book and talking with the authors was simply that we take the revolution at its word not naively by believing everything the party says about itself, but in the sense that we recognize that we recognize it for what it genuinely was. An attempt to transform society, transform how people relate to each other, how they produce, how they consume, how they think about their lives, including their own pasts and futures. This is why it absolutely drives me crazy when communism is equated with fascism, like the EU parliament recently decided. On this, because fundamentally, communism was a project that aspired to the emancipation of humanity and a life free of exploitation. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not a revisionist, I'm not a tanky, I'm not a, you know, I, uh, I, I think it is absolutely necessary to soberly confront uh, the 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 violence and and um, and some of the disastrous effects of this attempt, but it is fundamentally different um, than the fat than the Nazi racialized logic of genocide. And to to compare them is to basically 
throw history out the window. I mean, even as James Scott, who, as, as, as you probably already well know, is, is no fan of communism, um, you know, the subtitle of his book, Seeing Like a State, is how certain schemes to improve the human condition failed, not how certain schemes to destroy half of humanity failed. So the point is not, is, is not to stop trying uh, to improve the human condition and to improve people's lives, but to learn from those failures of the past. And quite frankly, I don't think that we have any other choice. So what started, so this, this project started as an issue of the open access quarterly journal made in China, which is edited um, by Ivan Franceschini and Nicholas Luber. Um, and we were all, the three of us were all postdoctoral fellows at the Australian National University uh, Center for China in the World. And um, when we were there at this time, we started talking about this project and how to put it together and reaching out to different authors. And then as the project grew larger and larger, we realized that we had this like um, monumental conceptual lexicon on our hands and that it deserved something more than a special issue. And we wanted to turn it into a book. As you mentioned in your very, very kind uh, introduction, uh, we have over we have 35 contributions, 35 entries, and an afterword by Jody Dean. Um, each chapter was limited to uh, 1,800 words to 3,000 words because, uh, one, that's the only way to make room for all of the entries. But also, as a writer, it's a wonderful experiment to try to constrain yourself to writing with such a finite economy of words in order to bring out both depth, erudition, profundity, as well as do it in a succinct manner. I find it, I, I actually love um, writing in that style personally myself. Um, so anyway, we have um, so uh, that so the word limit was was one of our requirements for the authors, and then another thing is is we asked all of our authors to write as much as possible for a general audience, for people who are interested in learning about China, but with possibly none of the you know historical background or none of the same conceptual familiarity. And this is also part of, I think, the Made in China ethos is to write in a very public-facing way. So we've tried to be as comprehensive as possible in the book and cover as many concepts and themes as we could. I am sure we left certain concepts out and that um, people will grumble about it, but that is, you know... I just expect that and move on from it. Um, originally, we were thinking about designing the book according to thematic chapters and clusters, but then we realized it might be imposing too much of our own interests and our own way of, um, of, of looking at the book on the reader. So instead, we just organized the chapters uh, alphabetically so the reader can make their own path through the book and see what different concepts resonate um, with each other. Um, beyond that, 
Um, as soon as the, the, as soon as we got, um, I, I honestly forget uh, how many, but it was maybe around 20 of the contributors agreed. We reached out to both Verso and to ANU Press because it was important to us to pursue an experimental model of publishing. The book is available via the ANU Press website as an ebook, entirely open access. You can download the book for free. You can download individual chapters for free. Uh, to this date, the book came out in June. And so far, um, the book has already been downloaded almost 9,000 times. Um, and uh, then we also reached out to Verso Press uh, because we we wanted a paperback as well. I'm, I'm a firm believer that there, the digital object and the printed object are um, are, are different things and, and one is more aesthetically pleasing than the other. You can guess which one. <laughs> um, and, um, and, and, and Verso was generous enough to take the risk with us and agree to publish a book, even though there were uh, free digital copies of it um, at the same time. And so far, we've also sold quite a bit of paperbacks. So the model is working. I'm really excited. Uh, I'm really excited uh, that that it's been as successful as it has been. And and another thing that I hope we can steer the the direction of the book to in the future is is as a as a wonderful resource for teaching. Um, I've already taught several chapters in my politics of of China undergraduate seminar. And, um, you know, maybe the students were simply performing according to my expectations. Um, you, you can't ever uh, discount that possibility, but I think they seem to, to, to genuinely like it and get a lot out of it in terms of the way it was written and in terms of the historical insight it provides. So I definitely urge um, the podcast listeners to, to consider putting, um, putting parts of it, if not the whole thing, on, on, on your syllabi. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm sure they will, because uh, uh, I'm also not surprised that your uh, students reacted so positively, because as you say, it does answer this kind of need for a um, really accessible uh, kind of approach to lots of these different ideas, which one has heard of in some uh, possibly disembodied way uh, in relation to China now and in the past, or in relation to uh, communist projects more broadly. Um, and I think uh, the broader project of taking uh, Maoism as a revolutionary project, taking it seriously um, and treating it as what you put in the introduction. It's a really nice uh, capturing of, of, of the project as a whole, I think, as, as a free inheritance of thought. So taking it sort of as a, an analytical uh, heuristic or an optic through which to look at some of these broader questions, I think it, it, it works so well married to this more accessible um, kind of yeah lexical uh, uh, dissection of the issues at hand. Um, but as it would happen, uh, and who knows whether this is a coincidence, um, your own contribution, uh, given that it begins with A, uh, A-E indeed, aesthetics, uh, is the first chapter. Uh, so I think that leads us in pretty well to discussing not just uh, your contribution uh, on aesthetics and, and the uh, kind of relevance of this idea to afterlives of Chinese communism, but a broader picture which runs throughout many of the chapters relating to questions of affect and soul and this kind of dimension to the the long kind of tailwinds of of communist revolution and so on so could you give us a picture of uh, of of this dimension to the book please yeah i would be happy to and uh, but by the way i i think it is very 
funny that you point out that I my my chapter is the first chapter in the book, and and I have to admit, uh, in a moment of self criticism, um, I've been relentlessly mocked that uh, I chose aesthetics as a keyword, and uh, by friends and students, uh, they they think it's a, it's. A, it wasn't a coincidence, and it was more a product of narcissism. But I'll, I'll leave that up to the reader to to, to decide. Um, <laughs> um, and, and, and no, actually, quite frankly, I was I was trepidatious of having my chapter go at the beginning of a book that has so many wonderful and brilliant contributors um, and people much smarter than than than, than I am. So it was it, it is it is an honor. I also want to point out I, I apologize for looping back, but I, I forgot there, there's one other thing that was very important to us in designing the book that I didn't mention earlier, which is we have some of the most senior um, and, um, you know, famous, well-respected people in the China field. And we also have, um, uh, uh, people finishing their, their dissertations or, or working on postdocs. So we have a, a range of, of, at the, you know, we have a range across the scholarly continuum, um, as well as it was important to us to, as much as possible, have gender parity, as well as have contributors from uh, working um, in China, uh, as well as as, as contributors uh, working abroad. Um, so, and which was, which for obvious reasons was, was difficult, was difficult to do, but, but, it, but, those were some of the, um, you know, ambitions underlying the book as well. So to get back to your question, um, one of the one of the lessons I think from the book is really about the intertwined nature of affect as well as aesthetics and the role that they play in political mobilization. And it, it, it's reading some of these chapters um, just contrasts so starkly with today's cynical times, cynical not only in the United States, but also cynical among the youth in China as well. Um, but, you know, as, 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 as Zizek, borrowing from uh, Peter Sloterdijk, uh, has pointed out that um, cynicism is actually the ideology of our time thinking that we're somehow apart from or can see through or um, can sarcastically mock power doesn't actually do anything to change the functioning of power. It's, it's, thoroughly, ideolo- it's thoroughly ideological, or as, as, as Zizek puts it to paraphrase, there's nothing more ideological than cynically believing one is outside of all ideology. So from today's cynical perspective, you know, we can look at some of the art that was produced under socialist realism. We can look at the the model revolutionary operas. We can look at the millions of red guards crammed into Tiananmen Square, waving their little red books, waiting for Mao to appear and to grace them with his presence and feel that they come from an entirely different world. And that, that feeling of, of, of different worldness actually shuts down our analytic capacity and allows us to believe certain things about ourselves that I think are very problematic. And I want to suggest that the book opens up a different perspective on the realm of emotion and politics. So, for example, 
the chapter by Gloria Davies, uh, who is at Monash University, her chapter is on immortality. And Gloria is a dear friend of mine, and nobody would confuse Gloria for being a Maoist. And yet, her chapter suspends that kind of cynical mocking of the language of immortality and the sacralization of Mao and actually interrogates the concept. As Gloria puts it, she herself is not sacralizing Mao, but she wants to explore, and forgive me, I'm going to be a little pedantic and quote from the book because uh, her words are much uh, lovelier than mine. Uh, she says, quote, how his words have continued to enjoy a commanding presence in mainland public discourse. They are often what people reach for when they want to express their desire for a transformative politics, end quote. So Gloria's chapter opens up onto questions of how is um, on authority, transcendence of power, revolutionary afterlives, and afterlives that can often take unpredictable paths, words people can take up, find inspiration in. And, you know, we can actually see confirmation in the radical unpredictability of Maoist words in the fact that the Communist Party over the summer cracked down on and arrested students who formed Maoist reading groups and attempted also to organize uh, networks of solidarity with um, workers uh, and, and, and uh, worker protests. So, so there is still some spark of power in the word. And Gloria's chapter takes that seriously and looks into the different ways in which that is produced. Um, a similar chapter, uh, not, 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 I take that back. There's no similar, to, you know, on a similar theme, uh, Hai and Lee's chapter on class feeling or Jiji Ganchin. Um, hi, uh, um, she writes, among the vanquished lingo of the Mao era is class feeling. To a millennial in China today, it may be Martian speak. But then she goes into how the party attempted to create comradely love where there was none, how they attempted to create out of a hierarchical society horizontal connections of solidarity and of sympathy among the proletariat, which was undergirded, of course, both by a vertical love toward Mao, as well as hatred and resentment for the class enemy. And she points out that none of this came natural to the broad masses of people, but it was a project. It was engineered. It was inculcated. It was the creation of new structures of feeling and one of the ways of doing this was through cultural production. So after setting up in only a few paragraphs this wonderful insight into how new social relations were um, produced through also creating new structures of feeling, Haiyan Li dives into looking at several artworks from the Mao period, including the revolutionary opera The Red Lantern. But she doesn't end the chapter there. She goes on by saying, um, she doesn't end the chapter on that note that we're usually left with that says, that was an irrational period and somehow now we're rational. There is no temporal rupture that divides the emotions of the Mao period from the, the you know, uh, 
sober, sober rationality or secular rationality of today. There is also not a spatial differentiation between East and West either. Instead, she points out the role that emotions play in politics everywhere, which recasts the Mao period in, um, in, in a different light, but not only that, also recasts our own social predicaments and current conjuncture in a different light. And, and I love how her chapter ends. Her chapter ends with the question of, okay, if social movements, if, if, if the, the question for social movements is how do we stir the heart? How do we create new ways of feeling and caring for each other? And, and I'm kind of riffing here and elaborating a little bit on her chapter um, uh, with my own perspective, but I, I really feel that we can't combat, especially in the U.S., Trump-style emotions of fear, disgust, as Wendy Brown puts it, the, the, the kind of passion of nihilism, and that's how she defines Trumpism. We can't really fight those with you know, Habermasian dialogue or pointing out factual inconsistency and saying, wait, hang, excuse me, hang on one second. You, you actually have the history wrong here because that's actually, that's actually not where the um, field of struggle is. And, and so Haiyan Lee really leaves us with the question, if we care about creating emancipatory social movements, they can't be devoid of feeling. So how do we create new revolutionary structures of affect while keeping in mind the kinds of dangers that they can also um, that they can also produce. And, and if you want to cut to one of the chapters that deals with the dangers uh, more directly, uh, Michael Dutton, his chapter is on friend and enemy distinction in Maoism. Um, and, and he puts it again, summarizing, but he like where, where Carl Schmidt uh, theorizes the friend enemy distinction. I think he says uh, something like Maoism embodies it on the knife's edge. Um, and, uh, what Dutton's chapter looks at is, is he basically argues that the communist party invented or perfected different technologies that generated these feelings of revolutionary intensity. And, and, and we know that those intensities can be very comradely as well as very violent and they can also be auto-destructive in a way where they turn against themselves. And we can see that, and again, I don't, I don't really, you know, you have to forgive me if I'm misquoting or misremembering any of, any of the book. <laughs> um, there are 53 chapters that we, that we edited. Um, but, um, but I think we could see the cultural revolution in that light where, where, some of where, where these revolutionary intensities uh, start to undergo a process of involution and turn on themselves. Um, there are also, uh, and I'm sorry, I feel like I've, I've answered this one question um, in an extremely long-winded way, and I haven't even gotten to my chapter. <laughs> so I, I apologize for that, but I just, I just want to mention um, we also, th there are some, there weren't as many um, given the publication, the constraints on, on publishing, it's it's hard to include images and artwork, but some of our chapters include really really wonderful photographs and images, 
And, you know, we have Tong Lam has a chapter on mobile film projection units that went out into the far remote regions of the countryside to 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 bring communist enlightenment and 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 the spark of of cinema politics and and modernity and and he compares that with uh the same attempts to with similar attempts to revive it uh today but with sans you know revolutionary ardor and and there are just some gorgeous photographs that he took in 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 the book Anyway, I, I think all of these are valuable lessons for rethinking a socialist or communist or leftist politics of the present. And I mean, one of the questions that's important to me is how do we get people to overcome their feelings of atomization, alienation, loneliness, and psychic stress under late capitalism? And, and I think there are valuable lessons to be learned from the Maoist experiment, both positive as well as negative object lessons. Mm. Well, that probably leads us on quite well to the question, which you kind of gestured at in your reference to these recent arrests of spontaneous uh, student organizations of Marxist or Maoist or leftist reading groups and uh, a desire really to actually enact some of the um, uh, words and 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 exhortations of uh written down uh maoist ideas in real contemporary china and i think the fact that the communist party itself reacts quite so uh, starkly to this is a recognition of some of these uh revolutionary intensities as you put it and 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 concerns around them and the threat that they may pose to the existing structures of power uh in in the present day um and it also i think addresses quite interestingly this broader idea about uh, whether or not in kind of hackneyed and, and journalistic shorthand, I guess, she is returning uh, the country to the days of Mao and Xi Jinping is the, you know, uh, most authoritarian, most controlling leader that China has had since the Mao era. This is something that we hear a lot about. Um, but uh, is this, uh, I mean, w- what is the kind of, distinction that we draw between tracing the afterlives of Maoist thought and uh, actually attributing Mao-esque stature to Xi himself. Ah, what a uh, another fantastic and fantastically complicated and fraught and fraught question, but but I, I, I very much appreciate you asking it because it it's one of those things that that drives me a little batty because I don't think you can that anyone can make the claim that she is returning China to the Mao period. If there is no class struggle, if there is no mobilization of the masses, and you know, two of our chapters in the book, uh, one of the concepts is mobilization, another of the concepts is um, class struggle, uh, which which go into this. But without class struggle. Without mass mobilization, you cannot have Maoism. Otherwise, all that we're left with is an ahistorical concept of authoritarianism. And I really feel that these conversations in this kind of, like as you put it, journalistic shorthand is a symptom of, of, of Mark Fisher's point uh, that, that I mentioned to start off the, the interview in the podcast um, that of, of capitalist realism, that people have no sense 
of different political worlds have no sense of competing ideologies or possibilities because everything gets reduced to the concept of authoritarianism. Um, uh, and I can, I, I can give you an example, and, and I, I actually wanted to talk about this a little later um, with Made in China, uh, but it, I think it's pertinent to bring it up now. I wrote an, an essay for, for Made in China, so this is not in the Afterlives book, but I wrote an essay in Made in China responding to a widely circulated speech that John Garneau, a former journalist and advisor to the Australian government, um, gave that was circulated on Bill Bishop's newsletter, the, the Sinicism or Cynicism, however you pronounce it, newsletter, uh, where he basically warns the Australian government and the rest of us to sober up about Xi and the direction that he is taking China. And that direction is the frightening world of ideology. And in this piece, um, Garneau argues that Lenin, Stalin, Mao, and she basically form an unbroken continuity of total ideological control, and that all of them treat language in exactly the same way. And I mean, if you, I, 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 I feel that uh, I, I urge people to to read Garneau's essay, um, and then to see if I'm being fair, and then to read my 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 response to it. But um, but to me. I don't understand how it's possible to collapse all of the ideological battles, all of the different uses of language into one monolithic totalitarian communist ideology, as if Xi and Mao are pursuing the same goals or even speak in the same language. Um, and, and that's, that's part of the questions that the book raises. Where are their continuities and where are their discontinuities? And, and so to, to, to answer that, um, I, I would say, so several of the chapters bring up um, concepts and practices that have completely vanished. So uh, Alessandro Russo, in his chapter on class struggle, which also focuses on the dictatorship of the proletariat, um, neither of those concepts are within the present political lexicon uh, of the Communist Party. In fact, um, and I, I forgot who initially pointed this out, but in the 1980s, even the word for class, jiaji, uh, um, started to um, be replaced by the word, the sociological word for strata, jiezong. Uh, so, so we're not even talking about jieji dojong. We're not talking about class struggle. Even the word class starts to be removed from uh, discursive circulation in place of a depoliticized, desubjectified sociological category, right? So, 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 and, 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 you know, the dictatorship of the proletariat, that's never been um, a really popular term. <laughs> um, and, and uh, I mean, at, at least in, in English speaking world, and, and that term is gone. Uh, people like Rebecca Carl in her chapter and, uh, and, and, and Lin Chun in her chapter, um, Rebecca Carl deals with the, um, the, uh, Serve the, the 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 motto serve the people and Lin Chun uh, deals with the mass line, 
And both of them draw the conclusion that what scintillated with a certain radical potential of reshaping political structures, of reshaping social relations, of creating new modes of common sense, of creating new expectations about politics, um, those potentials have all been entirely drained. Um, you know, Rebecca Carl ends her, her chapter on the mass line. Uh, no, oops, sorry. Her, she ends her chapter on Serve the People by saying, quote, its life as a socialist text has gone the way of socialism itself. Dead, gone, buried. Uh, Lin Chun ends her chapter on the mass line with a similar sentiment, arguing, quote, the mass line is dead, but its aspiration, its lessons and aspirations live on, end quote. So, so these are terms that, that will recur um, in, in, the, in the contemporary period, as we know, with the, the um, you know, the, 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 the much mocked uh, Lei Feng Day in 2012, the concept of serve the people kind of reappears only to be um, ridiculed back into hiding. Um, uh, Xi Jinping tries to, tries to revitalize the idea of the mass line, but not in any real way in which the masses have um, uh, um, any agentic or any political uh, capacity or any dialogic capacities. So, so in other words, some of these concepts still still circulate as 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 as, as remnants of of party legitimation that that cannot be swept under the rug, but that cannot also be revived at the same time. And um, to shamelessly plug my first monograph, I apologize for this. Now, now, now I'm making the case for my own narcissism. I'm, I'm realizing, but to, to shame, but to shamelessly plug my my first um, monograph, "Shaken Authority" on the Communist Party's response to the 2008 Citron earthquake, I, I, I basically argue that that the, that that the party is is stuck with a symbol with with um, is stuck in between basically a past that they can no longer inhabit, but also cannot get rid of. In my own chapter on aesthetics as well, I, I also draw a comparison between the Mao period and the Xi period. So as most of, I'm sure, our listeners um, are familiar in 1942, Mao famously gave the talk at the Yan'an Forum of Literature and Art on the relationship between politics and art in the context of revolution. And I analyzed this text in, uh, in the chapter. So in October 2014, she gives a speech at the Forum of Literature and Art. And, and so in my chapter, I, 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 I don't directly set up a comparison between both speeches, um, but what becomes clear is that without the goal of pursuing revolution, without the transformative aspirations of the Mao period, Xi's speech reads as a defense of party-sanctioned morality, positive energy, cultural heritage, and nationalist sentiment. And, and I wonder when reading this speech, in what way can this be said to be Maoism? 
the anarchic, the mass-driven, the transformative, the violent, the destabilizing aspects of Maoism are entirely removed from the picture. So I think that unless we have an entirely apolitical understanding of history, then we cannot say that she is returning China to the Mao period. In fact, um, I very much like the argument that my good friend Timothy Cheek at the University of British Columbia, uh, and, and, and Tim Cheek is also an author. He has a wonderful chapter on uh, thought reform in the book. Um, but I really love Tim's response to this question is that, if anything, she is attempting to emulate Liu Shaoqi and not Mao. And the reason for it is because if you if anybody takes the time to to read she's she's essays and collected works and thought and so on and so forth he's obsessed with party discipline with order especially with the role of of sacrifice of dangxing of party spirit of um structurally of of, of Xi's emphasis on county party secretaries um he's much more a thinker of stability discipline and organization than he is of the kind of tumultuous Maoist style of governance. So, so I, I, I fully agree uh, with with Tim on this piece. And um, you know, Tim, if you're listening, I, I hope you uh, write an article on it. Uh, I'm so yeah. Well, uh, we'll make sure to uh, to get it his way, perhaps. Um, but I, I think uh, that leads us on um, to something that kind of brings us back into the fold of tracing underlying connections, if you like. I mean. Um, you're right that there is uh, an absence of class struggle. There is an absence of this revolutionary foment, which uh, I guess characterizes uh, the Maoist era in all of its uh, utopianism and in all of its disasters uh, during the 20th century. But what it has in common with the contemporary period is this kind of linear, um, quasi-teleological forward drive for progress and development and lots of these ideas, which I guess got injected into China and East Asia at large uh, before communism or as sort of as part of the arrival of ideas uh, among which communism was included, um, but which really have have kind of barreled on in the way that they themselves kind of uh, uh, suggest uh, up to the present and China's drive forward um, remains, of course, a preoccupation of many throughout the world. Um, so how do these kind of ideas about linear forward development and the kind of almost the vanguardism of the party and and uh, the kind of desire to uh, surpass, uh, as one of the chapters is called, other countries um, and and become uh, sort of nationally self-realized? How do how do these kind of uh, exhibit continuities from uh, the period of of Mao and, and Chinese communism in the twentieth century and to the present day? Yeah, that's that is a. Um... That is a wonderful question as well. Um, I, I, I also genuinely appreciate your your thoughtful reading of the book, Ed. I would I would just like to to, to say that. Um, <laughs> so, one way 
of looking at it um and i'm trying to think of what would be what would be the the best examples but um yeah there there are structural continuities between the mao period and the present or throughout not just making it shi mao and forgetting about the rest that came in between one one of the one of the chapters that that speaks a, exactly to the point that you raise is Anna Laura Wainwright's chapter removing mountains and draining seas in which she talks about that promethean approach to the environment that believes um in large i mean large scale is not even the word i would say like hyperscale engineering projects to transform um, the environment that persists from the Mao period to the present. And if my memory serves me correctly, she, she takes a critical stance towards, you know, the, the new discourse of Shengtai uh, Wenming, of uh, ecological civilization, and, and recreating this kind of you know, harmonious understanding of of humans' relationship with nature, which is part of the discourse, because nevertheless, um, these massive Promethean-style um, projects to transform nature are still very much a part of how the CCP epistemologically, um, as well as, you know, materially, govern and think and attempt to transform the world. Um, One chapter with uh, surprising, you know, I I think a great thing about this book is that some of the chapters may surprise us uh, depending on the political moment in which we read them, where certain chapters or certain concepts may not be relevant for a period of time or kind of flicker out and then come back, um, and then and then uh, you know uh, become very important again. And one of them, I, I would say, uh, Yang Long's chapter on on self reliance um, with the trade war, the U.S. China trade war, Zili uh, Gongsheng. The term self reliance is is been re injected into um into public discourse and circulation um so so it's, it's it's interesting to see the ways in which some of these legacies can be dormant but then mobilized um if the if the circumstances require it and and of course <coughs> you know it was it was a great honor to have uh, elizabeth perry contribute to the to the volume. And, and she makes the argument that one of the kind of secret institutional um, um, aspects of the Communist Party's um, resilience is, is the functioning of work teams. Um, and, uh, and, and the fact that the party can create and deploy work teams to address um, any kind of shifting singular crisis that it faces um and 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 so 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 she she basically um focuses on this 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 aspect of the communist party's 
flexible organizational structure that has allowed it to kind of um, adapt to to address whichever kinds of local circumstances it faces and encounters. Right. So, so of course, I, I, I think you're you're absolutely correct to bring up there are institutional um, inheritances or um, um, I though I'm trying, I'm, I am pro- I am a political scientist by training, so I'm trying to sound fancy. Where we could say path path dependencies exist, right? Um, <coughs> um, I feel like it sounds fake when I use those words. It doesn't sound it doesn't it doesn't sound fluent. Um, but um, you know, so there are uh, institutional inheritances that, of course, exist as well as epistemological inheritances that that definitely shape certain ways of seeing problems as well as crafting responses to those problems um and um yeah so so i i would um encourage the audience to um to try to uh, wend their way through some of the chapters to to get a a, a sense of the of the texture of of um of this particular way of politically approaching the world mm, no absolutely I, I think that kind of sums up very well what what uh, a great experience reading this book is because really you can kind of pluck odd chapters depending on what takes your fancy and um it's also absolutely right to say that they often surprise not only in relation to what is currently going on and things that have developed since the book took shape, I guess, but also, you know, what one might expect to be in a chapter about a given topic uh, is, is often quite different from what it turns out to be. Um, so I'm thinking, for example, of some of the international dimensions, which we might not have time to talk in detail about here. But I mean, the the idea of internationalism as a, as a, a kind of a socialist totem uh, since the very beginning, um, and how that has sort of morphed in in the way that many of these other ideas and terms have uh, up to the present, um, the way it makes itself felt uh, in in some of the writing, for example, the chapter on permanent revolution by Matthew Galway um, addresses the uh, Peruvian uh, kind of Maoists and uh, and how uh, some of the kind of uh, theories developed in a totally different uh, context there, um, and of course you know, what we're looking at in terms of contemporary Chinese developmentalism is so much tied to uh, the desire to to uh, 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 cement a place in a kind of global community. Um, but I, I think it, it's possible that uh, we don't have a great deal more time to, <laughs> to delve into all of the other uh, dimensions to this uh, wonderful book. And, and I think it would be ludicrous to attempt to uh, deal with 53 chapters uh, in one sitting anyway. Um, so Christian, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a chance perhaps uh, before we say goodbye to, to just give us more of a picture of the, the Made in China project and, and uh, how there's a sort of ongoing, I guess, nature to some of these uh, kind of ideas and, and, and the sort of uh, model that is there in uh, afterlives of Chinese communism. I would be happy to, um, but first... As a necessary caveat and disclaimer, um, the the main editors uh, who do all of the thankless heavy lifting for Made in China um, for the open access quarterly are um, Ivan Franceschini and Nicholas Luber, and um, I honestly don't know how they do it. 
Um, and 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 um, besides 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 um, giving them praise where praise is due, I also am giving this disclaimer because I am on the editorial collective, but I am not um, by any means the viewpoints of this author are not representative of the Journal of Made in China. So, okay, now that we've got that out of the way, <laughs> I think that Made in China does some really incredible stuff. Um, first, we have a wide diversity of contributors with different political views, and I think that is fundamentally a positive thing. Ultimately, the way Ivan and Nicholas um, designed uh, Made in China was with the aim of providing informed views written for a public audience by people who do research on China. So public-facing scholarship. Um, and again, I, I, I want to be clear that we do have, we have over, that Made in China has had so far over 300 different contributors. So to call all of them leftists is obviously a fantasy that I have, but it's not true in reality, right? Of course. And, 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 I, and I am obviously reined in by my sober colleagues with this. Um, but I, so I, I do want to point out that, that it is, I think, a great way to model debate and diversity and different critical appreciation of aspects of um, of things unfolding in China today. Um, so why I like Made in China a lot, besides the fact that I'm involved within it, with it, is that um, I like to think of it as a platform where there can be a critical discourse that engages China broadly from the left that is not co-opted by the right. And if anyone... If anyone is feeling particularly masochistic and wants to go on Twitter and look at the conversations that happen there about China, you'll just be flooded with narratives, uh, hawkish narratives about all Chinese are brainwashed and so on and so forth. Now, don't get me wrong. None of us deny that there aren't massive problems, contradictions, and even atrocities occurring at the present moment. But the question is, what is the solution or how do we talk about the problems or what kind of conversation can we have toward what political goals? What is the end game in a certain way? And, you know, I think in all honesty, we live in a crazy time. Like uh, when, when I, to go back to that that op that essay I wrote that was simply critical of John Garneau's conceptualization of ideology. I got such like a lot of people wrote to me thanking me, and you know a lot of people shared it and were excited about it. But it also got a really negative reaction. Um, I was accused because I criticized someone who criticizes China. I was accused of being a water carrier for the CCP. I was accused of being malicious. I was accused of being, uh, you know, ideologically contaminated, as it were. Um, it, it, it's really, um, I think we're striking a nerve and that's, that's a good thing. Um, we've had several pieces that have tried to explore what's happening 
in in Hong Kong and and in China from multiple perspectives to open up dialogues and to ask questions is given these structural conditions are there avenues and possibilities of solidarity and um some of these essays have also um just elicited such a torrent of 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 reaction um of and i'm, I'm saying that not in the object i'm saying that in the negative you know reactionary sense of reaction right um where i i just i like i barely can go on twitter these days because i find it so depressing and um and i think what's really important is to try to open up new ways of talking that can trace the contours of a future that is politically desirable rather than disastrous that engages china from a capacious yet critical perspective and that doesn't fall into the traps of either hawkish um cold war mongering or liberal 1990s clintonite fantasies and and so for me the more we can generate new ways of 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 conceptualizing and speaking to each other the better and you know i love jody dean's conclusion to the afterlives of communism book where she writes uh to to quote jody communist names present the word world differently from the way it is given in capitalist ideology so we don't have to all be communists of course um jody, I, I know jody is um but but her point is is well taken that we cannot just speak in the language that is given to us you know we can't let the bad guys the hawks waiting to start the next war the vultures waiting to swoop in and profit from the destruction um we can't we can't let them define and dominate the conversation and the concepts and the terms that we use to analyze and engage the world and so to me made in china is a platform to open up new ways of speaking and also relating to each other right and well i think it uh, it does that and i think the the book too is a terrific uh, sort of statement of intent and indeed a, an an act of acting on that intent uh, for everyone to um, appreciate and indeed it's much more than that because it's just a real trove of information uh, in general about what uh, is going on now in china in relation to um things that relate directly to the to the socialist legacy or the, the Maoist communist legacy, but also um, deeper sort of ideas around Confucian tradition and, and uh, Marxism, Leninism as a broader philosophy and so on that we don't have time to get into. But uh, I want to thank you, Christian, for giving us a picture of uh, what this book is about and, and, and for sharing with us your ideas today. Well, thank you, Ed, for for inviting me and taking the the time and care and uh, intellectual generosity to engage the project. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, listeners, I want to thank you too for listening. Uh, I also want to say that, uh, as you've heard from Christian today, there's absolutely no excuse for not getting a hold of this book since it's uh, free, as long as you've paid for the internet, which I suppose is some kind of cost. Uh, but uh, download it now anyway. Um, and thank you as ever for listening. And we will be with you on the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast very soon. Goodbye.